Today we get pathological with Dr. Todd Littleton. Welcome to the Impact Legacy and Meaning Podcast, where we discuss the mindset, strategies, and tactics that will allow you to make the kind of impact you want on your family, your business, and your community, while creating a personal and financial legacy that will last for generations. I'm Sean Skaggs, your host. I'm a father, husband, business leader, and follower of Christ who's on a mission to help you create the impact, legacy, and meaning you want for your life. Don't forget to go to impactlegacyandmeaning.com to download your free personal assessment. And if you like the show, don't forget to hit the subscribe button and be sure to leave a review on iTunes and help spread the word. So before we get started today, I wanted to let you know that this will actually be one of two parts with Todd Littleton. There will be a part two coming. The truth is we had such a good time talking that uh, we went beyond the capabilities of my recorder. I had no idea it had a 60-minute limit on it. I had no idea that we'd been talking for 60 minutes. Uh, When it was all said and done, we'd gone for about an hour and 45 before I checked the recorder and realized that it cut off at 60 minutes. So this will be part one of two. Enjoy. Welcome to the Impact Legacy and Meaning podcast. I am here today with my friend Todd Littleton. Todd is a pastor. He is a, uh, I should have said Dr. Todd Littleton. He is a professor. He has his own uh, podcast called Pathological. Mm -hmm. Uh, and he is a mentor and a guy who wears a lot of different hats. And more important than all of those things, he is one of the smartest guys I know, and he's also one of the best people that I know. Mm. And so that's why I really wanted to have Todd here on the podcast is because he's, like I said, one of the smartest people I know and one of the best people that I know. Mm. And so, uh, Todd, thank you for coming on the podcast. Thanks, Sean. That's a pretty high bar now to fill out for your uh, audience, but I uh, appreciate the words. Those kind words. Appreciate that. So, you know, we've been talking here for I don't even know how long, probably the last 40 minutes <laughs> about uh, podcasting. Right. And so uh, maybe we should start a podcasting podcast. Yeah, there we go. There we, we go. Have we have lots do to that. talk about for sure. But if you don't mind, just tell, uh, tell everybody a little bit about your okay. story, where you came from and all the way to your family, what you're doing now, okay. those kind of things. Yeah. Yeah, Sean. I, I, uh, I, you know, we live here in Tuttle, but I grew up in Oklahoma City, so I'm I'm a city kid, and um, I met my wife in uh, in high school. We started dating when I was 15, so at my age, that means I've known her longer than about anybody but my parents, and uh, uh, probably some of the biggest influence on me was was my. Uh, uh, was my dad and my mom, but my dad, um, particularly his work ethic and those kinds of things. So when I, you know, saw the title of your podcast and I thought about impact legacy, I, I thought of my dad. Uh, I thought about, for instance, you know, my dad worked for uh, the largest uh, electric provider in the state of Oklahoma for a little over 30 years before they retired him uh, in a reorganization. But he started out digging holes for power poles. You know, and I thought back, so what did I start out doing? You know, I'm a pastor. I started out unlocking the church building. So at 8 a.m. on Sunday mornings, I was, I don't know, maybe a, a junior, senior in high school. I lived a half a block from the church. They trusted me with a key, which also got me a key to the gym, but got me a key. And, uh, 
And so I would unlock so the staff wouldn't have to and nobody else would have to come up and then and I'd lock it up, make sure all the doors were locked and lights were out, you know. So I thought, well, that was my digging holes, you know, and dad didn't have any problem starting out doing that kind of thing. And, and, and I thought, well, you got to start somewhere, you know. And uh, I went to college uh, in Shawnee at Oklahoma Baptist University and uh, sophomore year, Patty and I got married. We've been married uh, 36 and a half years. I had to think real well, quick. Congratulations yeah. on that. That's yeah. a feat in itself. Yeah. And, uh, and then uh, when I graduated uh, from college, we had our first child, Kimberly, uh, and then uh, went to seminary in uh, Fort Worth, Texas. And for graduation at seminary, we had Tommy. Uh, I waited the required amount of time, tried to sneak in to get my doctoral work done right after that, but they had some, you know, they had some rules. I mean, imagine that. Somebody's got rules, but they had rules, and I, I went and worked on my, my D-Men and, and finished that in 93. Spent a year, one more year in Texas, and I've been here since 94. Met you a number of years ago, and know you and, you know, your family, and watched it grow, and, and, uh, know your extended family and just really enjoy kind of being here so how many years have you been at snow hill now Is it 25 25 25, That's what I 25 in july and i don't know if uh, anybody out there listening knows this but 25 years is a long time for a pastor to be in one place that doesn't happen N- no well, I, I sean sean i remember sitting in a placement breakfast in 1988 and i remember um the fellow saying the average tenure at the time was about 22 months. Wow. And I thought, years. wow, this is not really kind of a very stable <laughs> profession. <laughs> yeah, yeah um, and that could be because uh, that person got a chance to move on to someplace different, or it could be because they got run out on a rail, uh, just it, depending it, on that, what that, kind of church it was. That is exactly right. Yeah. He, he, there, there were, he said there were, 12, there were 12 staff changes in the state of Oklahoma every week. 12 were going somewhere and 12 were leaving. Wow. <laughs> and not the same place. <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, that's pretty amazing. But it's amazing that you've been there for uh, 25 years and really yeah. built that into a yeah. great place. I mean, obviously, Todd's been my pastor for, uh, I don't know, how long have I been married? Oh, wow. 15 years, I think. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, over 15 years. Yeah. So you've yeah. been my pastor for at least 14 years yeah. of that because it yeah. wasn't very long after Casey and I got married. Right. That we started going to church there right. uh, because we were honestly we were getting a lot of pressure from uh, the church that I grew up in to go to church there, and we were getting a lot of pressure from the church she grew up in, which were a good seventy feet apart. Sure, uh, <laughs> right. To go, that we should go there, and there was you know it was starting to get a little bit tense, and we just thought, you know what, why don't we find some place that's a little bit different to yeah. go anyway? And yeah. I had met you and, yeah. and really liked you yeah. and, and Nathan. Um, Right. Who's my friend and my cousin right. uh, had just started as a youth pastor there, and so right. we thought, why don't we just go give that a try? Right. And we found a group that we really fell in with, yeah. and, and got along well with, and were Great able group. to uh, to really, you know, kind of go through life with. Mm-hmm. And so yep. that was the thing. Yep. See, there's not a lot of places where you can find a group like that that you can go through life with, that you can be honest with, right. that you can, uh, you know, really struggle and wrestle with theology with right um, right there's a lot of places where you try and have those conversations and it just scares everybody to death and they tell you stop reading books yes exactly yeah don't talk yes <laughs> yeah. and so uh, uh you know that was 
Yeah. I really enjoyed that and uh, really enjoyed you know, having you as a friend over the yeah. years because yeah. we've had a lot of conversations where yes. a lot of them where I was probably a little too far out on the limb and you helped <laughs> to bring me back in uh, and uh, uh, a lot of, you know, a lot of good conversations that yep. I've definitely grown from. Yeah. So I appreciate that. Yeah. And you know, you mentioned something else. Another reason why I wanted to have you on the podcast mm-hmm. is because you have raised, you know, two amazing daughters who mm-hmm. have families of their own now mm-hmm. and done that successfully. So you're further along in the game than I am, right? And so uh, you know, wanted to talk to you a little bit about yeah. that process, and yeah. you know, what do you what what do you think about that? I guess. Yeah, I, I you know I I'm glad you sent me kind of a you know kind of some things that you like to cover in your podcast, and I I had to actually think about you know the question about kids, and I got to thinking, so what exactly uh, do you say about that? And I got well, you know. I don't think anyone ever calculates what it is to have adult children, you know. I, it was funny the other day, I was talking to somebody who, uh, um, we were talking about just the different stages children, you know, we experience children at when they're really young and then when they become teenagers and then when they graduate, you know, uh, along that spectrum. And and everyone always has a special age that they, oh, I just loved it when they were, you know, however old. And then, and then you have that group, Oh, I can't wait till there is age when they can do for themselves. They can, you know, they can they can make their cereal and a sandwich, and and then when they can drive, and then and you and see you, you always look for what's that quote ideal age, and then and then you realize you don't ever stop parenting. It just changes, you know, and and so I imagine if we flip the interview a little bit, you know, from your angle, we could talk about what it was like for you with your family when you became an adult what are some of the things you recall and i probably should have done that before i knew my girls were you know were, were graduating and getting married i probably should have gone and interviewed somebody because yeah. then you turn around and you go i can't say that to them you know <laughs> wait a minute wait a minute they're adults i mean you know and then you know uh you know uh and then what do you do sometimes when they make a decision that you're like I don't know that I would have made that one. You can't go tell them, you know, they're adults. They got to learn, you know, so it's been fun. It, it really has. Um, you know, you you learn kids are different, obviously, and you learn that you, while you try to treat them as equitably in terms of, you know, what you provide. So, you know, you don't want to make sure one has clothes and the other one doesn't, and one has something good to eat and someone doesn't. So, you know, you, you treat them equitably in that way, but their personalities are different, you know, their, their, their way they process their feelings, their emotions are different. And I've always said, and, and I'll keep this clean because everyone expect me to for being a pastor, but I've always said that the best thing ever happened to me is to have two girls because I probably would have been a turd. Yeah. I mean, if I hadn't had two girls, I could see myself just, you know, I would have been a Ted Bundy, you know, and, and or an Archie, Archie Bunker or whoever a modern day male chauvinist jerk you know i could see that if i just had boys because i processed the world as a guy you know right. and all i and and i never thought about processing the world or the experiences and my feelings any other way but wow is it an eye-opener you know to kind of take into account the way someone else views the world and so that's been a that's been really i think i think actually may have been one of the things that what contribute to being able to say I'm one of the nicest guys you know. Yeah, I don't yeah. know that I might have been that, you know, had it not been for for that experience. So, um, you know, you, 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 you do learn that 
maybe you could have done things different, you know, and, and so obviously when you re recognize the difference in your children, you, uh, well, I can't do that one with this child. I've got to maybe try a different strategy, and it's not that somehow they're deficient. They're just different, and yeah. that's a tough that's it. Tough. You've got you've oh, yeah. you've got that experience. There, yeah, there. Times five, right? That's now, right. And, that's uh, right. And I'm struggling with it. Yeah, I do. Oh, I struggle yeah. with it a lot. And, and yeah. the kids always, you know, you've got to handle them differently because you've got some that are able to handle certain things that others can't. Right. And that may not be uh, in line with their ages. Right. And so oh. then you have the whole argument about that's not fair. Right. Why do, right. why do they get to do that? Right. But I don't get to do that. Right. And those kind of things. But right. you don't want to hinder one because one of them is not ready for correct whatever that responsibility and, is. Yet. And and those are those are always I tell young parents, those are always trial and error. I mean no book oh, came I mean when you exactly. when you you know when you adopted the kids nobody's gave you a manual. And you can't always go back and look at your own experience and go, well, I think I can do it just like that because uh, the setting's different, the circumstances are different, the world's different. So, you know, it just, it's, yeah. a, it's a whole different ballgame. I had a conversation about that just today, you know, just about the fact that I'm, I'm in a whole new world, it seems like, all the time because, you know, growing up I was the kid who was involved in ag, I was a big reader, I was basically a bookworm nerd, yeah. you know, my grades were super important to me and everything, but I was not a athletically gifted. I was, you know, I could be an offensive lineman, I could stand up and push the guy in front of me, and I was right. pretty good at that because right. I was pretty heavy. Right. But outside of that, that's about as far as my athletic ability went. And my plan was always, okay, my kids, I'm going to get them involved in agriculture just like I was, and they're going to be bookworms and nerds, and we're going to read books together and have fun doing that. And I end up with five kids that are all, you know, four, at least four of them are really, really gifted athletes. They are. They are. And they are, uh, you know, they're into sports all the time. All I do pretty much <laughs> is go from one ball game to the next when I'm not at work. And so, yeah, yeah it's a whole different world for me. Yeah. I'm trying to figure it out as I go. You know, how do I be the, you know, the right kind of parent so that I'm not embarrassing in the stands, but still, you know, supportive of them right. and uh, assertive for... I don't know what the right way to say that is, but assertive to make sure that they're getting their fair share. Sure. And, you know, so because you don't ever want to be that dad, right? Right, and, right. Because uh, we all know who that dad is. We know who that dad is. Yeah, <laughs> and so you don't want to be that guy, but at the same time, you know, you want to make sure that you're doing everything you can for your kids. Right, so, right. Yeah, it's, a, it's a whole new world for me. Yeah, in that, yeah. And, and luckily, my kids are actually bookworms. Yeah. They all love yeah. to read. Yeah, yeah. So that part of it, I, at least I got. Yeah, you yeah, Nothing else went according to plan. <laughs> <laughs> but see, you know, that's that's one thing about you know the thing they'll remember. You know, uh, even uh, even if it kind of you know uh, adjust our kind of vision, maybe we thought how it would go. They'll remember the investment you made. You know, they'll remember you and and Casey were there, and and those are the things that that become the memories that you know, <clears throat> we don't often calculate, you know, when we start thinking, what do we leave or what, what do we want people to remember us by? You know, we, we want our kids to, to think about us in terms of, you know, they, they were there yeah. and they invested in me and they gave me opportunities and, and you know, they're going to remember the times where we were maybe a little bit sterner in our discipline and they liked it and maybe we didn't let them do, but that's fine. But what they're going to remember is that, is that, they have someone who was there and helped them to be the best they could be. And, and those are the things that, that, you know, as a parent, I think at whatever stage of the game, you're trying to 
help them, even even when they become adults and come and ask you, what do you think? I took a lesson from my dad when you know when Patty and I got married. We were really young. In fact, today they'd tell us we were, were way too young. But uh, you know, I'd go and I'd have this. Either I needed to make a decision, you know, about something I thought was pretty big, and I'd ask my dad, "What do you think?" And he never would get, tell me. <laughs> I remember the first couple times getting so frustrated with my dad because it's like, "No, no, no, no! You're supposed to tell me that was you've always told me. It's always been your role." He said, "No." you're going to have to decide. I'll help you think through the, you know, the pros and the cons, the good and the bad, the possibilities and the difficulties, but in the end, you got to make the call and I'm like, I wasn't ready for that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah they kind of made the switch from consultant to coach. <laughs> yes, yes. That's not you you paid for a consultant. That's exactly <laughs> right. You owe me. Somebody's got to tell me. That's right. That's right. So I've tried to take that tact with the girls, and sometimes to their chagrin too, you know. But but I've tried to take it, take that tact with them, and and uh, because it benefited me, you know. At mm-hmm. some point, you know, you you do have to come to the place where they're not going to be available, and I don't mean by death. I mean it's just there's sometimes those decisions are right then you've got to make them. You don't mm-hmm. have a lot of time sometimes right. to, you know, put as much study into it as as uh, uh, you'd like to, and so if you can you know, throttle through all the things that they helped you think about when making a decision, then you you can feel at least more confident. So if you can try to help them be equipped to think critically about those things and then hopefully, you know, they'll make a decision that, that doesn't bring harm to them or somebody else. Yeah. Oh. That's good stuff. Yeah. Um, one other thing I was going to ask you about today, because yeah. uh, it's just been on my mind a lot lately and it's something that I've kind of gone through some transition on is the idea of mission. Oh. So I know you've talked about mission a lot from right. a theological context, right. but you know, just as a personal mission standpoint, I mean, what are kind of your thoughts about mission and about someone finding their own mission in life yeah. to uh, take hold of and, and use that yeah. basically to, uh, to propel them forward? Yeah, yeah, I think, um, I mean, that's a great word and, and it's, it's really, I mean, uh, you know, to to go back uh, when I was, you know, in high school, uh, say junior, senior, and trying to figure that out. You know, I, I kind of had a map in my own mind of what I do, and you know, in the language of you know pastoral work, you know, you 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 you're kind of looking for maybe what does God want you to do, or you know, um, not everybody necessarily thinks that way as a condition, which is no, no, no problem with that, but everybody wants to feel like I'm, I'm doing something, I'm making contribution. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really strip away any sort of, you know, religious political influence. I think when we understand that we're all in this together uh, and, and we all share experiences of life, we overlap and, and intersect in a lot of ways, I think we all in the end really, I think most people want to figure out how can I make a contribution and, and how do I find that, what that is, you know. And, and so I really do think it's important. I, uh, I remember Joel Barker who did some uh, research uh, for major corporations, and, and uh, um, he talked about, uh, at the time, vision, and the vision for him was the image of a preferable future. And then he had some things that influenced what your preferable future were, but I think in, a, in the largest sense, we could go back to, say, the whole idea that we just want people to flourish. You know, we want people to, whatever they're doing, we want them to flourish uh, for the good. And, and so um, I think that uh, having a, a sense helps us. 
uh, know what. And I, I think, you know, uh, sitting down with a young man even today, um, hearing him describe kind of his, his young life and years and what's his mission. And he had a crisis moment and he was trying to figure out and he was casting about looking for people to say, you know, what do I do? And well, he had a crisis in his life. He had a tragedy, actually. And um, when he was trying to put those pieces together, he was trying to figure out, okay, so what is it I'm, you know, what, what, what's one word that could characterize what I want to do? And he came up with serve. Not bad for a kid who's right. been through a lot, you know. I mean, there are a lot of other words he could have come up with, you know, for, for what he'd like to see in life at and with those difficulties. And so he had a buddy who said, well, I, you know, here's what, you're, here's what you're saying. So let me tell you, there's the, there's the Army, the Navy, the Air Force. And he said, he said well, wait, wait a minute, where'd that come from? He said, well, those organizations, by definition, train you to serve. So if you want to be someone who serves, well, he ended up going to the National Guard and um, still is and uh, enjoys it. He's actually thinking about maybe doing that full-time again. Uh, he, I think he did that for a full-time little bit, but that was, for him, it was finding what is that thing that gives me a sense that I'm making a contribution, I'm not bringing harm to anybody, I'm actually helping. And he learned that, you know, being in the Guard wasn't um, being called up in, a, in an international crisis. He learned that being called up in the National Guard may mean uh, going to uh, New Orleans after Katrina. It, it, it may mean, you know, heading out to help with the California brush fires. It may mean um, uh, being deployed into some uh, earthquake areas, you know. So he realized, well, no, I'm not just, you know, serving the role of a soldier. I'm actually going to get to help civilians in, yeah. in, 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 in like with the Murrah bombing even. Uh, you know, they told him that a guard was called out, you know, after the Murrah bombing. And, in Oklahoma City and so for him is like well I can serve broadly I don't have to just serve my national interests I get to actually serve people uh, who go through crisis and tragedy because he remembered people kind of helped him you know in that so I think it gives a person a real sense of of um, belonging because if my aim is to contribute to the good of my society then what I'm doing is actually giving me a place to belong and I think that's the second thing that most everybody's looking for. Where do I belong? Where do I fit? So not just what is my mission, what do I do, but how does that fit into kind of that larger picture? And so the crisis most, most people face today in loneliness is a very busy world trying to figure out where do I belong? And so it's one thing to find your mission, but you've got to figure out where am I going to fit with that? And so finding the right place is pretty important, you know. And, and so I, I think that's... A great thing, and I think that transcends any sort of um, theistic kind of vision of the world. It, it, that's really, I think, something that we can find commonality everywhere. You yeah. know, that, that we we all want to make a contribution to the good for the benefit of everybody we come in contact with. Yeah, I agree 100 percent on that. And that's you know, you talked about how he was kind of struggling to figure that out. It, it reminds me somewhat of you know something I went through a few years ago, you know, where um, you know we went through some things in our business that were. Uh, well, I don't know, you know, they were catastrophic for a lot of people, mm -hmm. you know, in, in some different ways. And, you know, and obviously there weren't lives lost in that, but uh, but there were a lot of jobs lost and um, just a lot of different things that happened that kind of sent me into a little bit of a tailspin. And I was trying to figure out, you know, because I'd had a mission up to that point and then it kind of felt like that had fallen away. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was trying to figure out what my mission was. But my problem was I was 
trying to, you know, waiting for it to fall on my head, basically. Mm, I was trying right. to figure out, you know, what is it going to be? How am I going to, you know, go, really go out there and, and figure out what it is I'm, excuse me, I'm supposed to do? And the two things that I figured out are, number one, it's got to be about somebody else. Mm-hmm. You know, your mission can't be about serving yourself. It's got to be about serving others. Right. Otherwise, you're just not going to have that feeling of fulfillment Mm-mm. because we're all meant to be here to help each other. Mm-hmm. And then the second thing that I figured out is your mission, you know, it's kind of like, I kind of compare it to how people talk about love. Oh, I fell in love or I fell out of love, like as a boat. Right, right. Um, You know, it's something that you decide to do. Right. And mission is kind of the same way. I think you've got to figure out, okay, where am I at? Where can I make an impact? And you've got to adopt a mission and then get into it. And once you get good at it, you know, that's whenever you start to get passionate about it. You know, that passion doesn't come and just find you. It doesn't fall out of the air. You know, somebody else can't come and tell you, this Mm -hmm. is what you're going to be passionate about. This Mm -hmm. is what your mission is going to be. You've actually got to make that decision. And that's whenever I figured that out, then all of a sudden things fell in place and they seemed a whole lot simpler. I knew exactly what I needed to do. Right. But, uh, but that's, but yeah, that's hard sometimes because when you're in that place where you feel like you've lost your mission or your purpose, uh, you you want somebody to come along and just tell you this is what it is. Absolutely, and you know one thing one thing that's really good about what you're doing here, even with the podcast, is is when you find that passion and you you get that sense of mission, you're also then looking for other ways to live that out. So it's not as though you know. I think one thing that happened um, with the the shift in economy, technology, and information. You know, my dad worked in the uh, electric business until he retired. Now, he worked, ended up working overall for pr- virtually three different, you know, large corporations. Um, but he still kept that mission, but he had to learn some adaptability. So in, 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 in some of the roles he played along the way, and so he looked for things. So, you know, when I've, I've watched it with you even with this, as we've talked about it, you know, you know what you're mission is it, you feel really good and passionate about it and now you're looking for ways to kind of share that to kind of kind of press that out further and i think that that may be the way that younger people see the longevity of their say career because i remember it wasn't long ago that people said well what you're doing in your 20s you won't be doing in your 30s and you'll be doing something different in your 40s and something different in your 50s and it scares some people to death you know what 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 do you mean i, I trained for this and you mean i'm going to be doing something completely different here well you, you never know how that mission is going to carry you how it's going to blossom the shape it's going to take the 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 place you might work, even the place you might live as you fill out that mission. So mission doesn't have to be confining. It can actually be freeing, and there are other possibilities that you never would have dreamed of. But when, like you said, when you get passionate about it, you see it in ways and places that, well, when you started out, you were just trying to plug away and get going, you know. So that's a... That's a, that's a, that's something that maybe might be encouraging, especially if you got some young listeners, you know, that they're trying to tap in. What is my mission? And I'm waiting on that passion to kick in. And and you know, they start getting discouraged by hearing people like, "Well, you're going to be doing this for 50 years. Well, you won't be doing the same thing for 50 years." Yeah, and well, and, and I think a lot of guys go through it whenever they kind of hit my age too, because they kind of hit that identity crisis phase, right? Yeah. You know, we get to the point where, you know, we thought we knew who we were for a mm-hmm. long time, and then mm-hmm. all of a sudden we're, we're mm-hmm. nobody. We're mm-hmm. just so-and-so's dad mm-hmm. for about 10 or 15 <laughs> years right. there. And you get tired of just being so-and-so's dad, and so That's you start right. thinking, who am I, That's right? right? 
Right. And so then whenever you start going through that, you know, some guys deal with it well, some guys don't. You see, yeah. you know, that's why you see guys out there riding bicycles on the side of the road. Right. That's why you got, see guys <laughs> driving uh, convertible cars right. and motorcycles and all kinds right. of different things uh, that right. they try and do to deal with it and to yeah. try and tell the world, this is who I am. You, you make a great point. You know, Father Rohr uh, puts it this way. He said, a man spends the first 40 years building his tower, and then he jumps off. <laughs> because you know, because yeah. he's like, because, because what he does is, is, is he sp- we, we do, and we, particularly men, we, you know, we spend the first part of our life feeling like we've got to accomplish something. And then when we have that identity crisis, we're going like, but I want my life to mean something. Right. You know? And that shift is pretty important, you know, and that's where, that's where it doesn't mean you have to, you know, jettison your mission. It's just your mission takes on something more important, like you said a while ago. Your mission really has got to end up being about how am I serving somebody else, whether it's your employees or whether it's a particular uh, niche in a market that has a, a great need, whatever it is. You know, you, when, when that becomes, that's the meaning that gets added to your mission, yeah. and that's... I think that's what gives someone staying power to stay after it when they, when they see, ah, oh, there's meaning here. Absolutely. Yeah, because there's a million different ways that you can help people. Yeah, right? a million, and million. It's just a matter of your perspective and how you see it and how you go yeah. about it. And, yeah. and if you just are able to see it from that perspective of this is how I'm going to help this person. I mean, even you know, people get, a lot of salespeople get a bad rap, right, because they're out there trying to sell something. But if they truly believe in what it is that they're trying to sell and they know that that thing they're trying to sell is going to help that person, it's going to help them make a living for their family, or it's going to help them live a better life in some way, if they truly believe that, then what they're trying to do is help that person. That's right. And so it's all a matter of perspective. It is. It um, is, and so we we've all got lots of opportunities to go out and oh help yeah people in yeah ways. yeah we should always we should always play to our imagination. Yes, we generally play to our limitations, and we ought to play to our imagination. The possibilities are just well, and it's like you said. Whenever you get passionate about one particular thing, you start to see those possibilities everywhere. Yes. I remember whenever I first got out of college, I went into the feed business. Mm-hmm. Right? I was working for Cargill in their animal nutrition division, and so I called on feed stores. And so after about six months of that, I saw feed stores as I was driving down the road everywhere. Places I never knew there were feed stores before, <laughs> but I saw every feed store that there was. Right. And I would point them out, and the poover was riding with me, and the pickup at the time would be like, Why, how do you see all these feed stores? Because that was what I was looking sure, for. Sure. And now, you know, I've been in the equipment business for almost 19 years, and so every time there's a piece of equipment running, you know, running out in a field or, or sitting on the side of a road somewhere, I am analyzing that piece of equipment <laughs> as I go by, just because... Sure. That's, you know, that's sure. what I've been passionate yeah. about for a long time. Yeah. You see those opportunities, but whatever it is that you're good at, whatever it is you're passionate about, you can find those opportunities. It's just a matter of having your eyes open. Yeah, those are great illustrations. Yeah. I mean, those are fantastic illustrations because, uh, uh, you know, again, it, it, instead of looking at I'm limited to that, it's look at all the possibilities that are out there. Yeah. Good. I like it. So... A couple of questions that I'll get into. That, you yeah. know, I, I sent you over some questions beforehand uh, just to try and help guide the conversation a little bit or mostly just to help me remember what I'm supposed to be doing here. <laughs> but you know, what are some of the biggest challenges that you face in making the impact that you want on your family? I mean, I, I've, as I said earlier, yeah. you know, I, I think you've done a great job of raising your family. You know, you've got great kids and they've got great kids now. And it's been fun to watch because I've got to see them basically right. from the time they were kids until right. now they when they've got their own families. Right. But I mean what do you what do you think are some of the biggest challenges that you still face 
in that? Yeah, I, I, I had to have to say I cheated, and I was trying to figure out, you know, what what would be, what would be kind of um, biggest challenges. You know, I think the you still as a as a as a parent when it comes to your family, for instance, I think you still we still have the tendency to universalize our experience. And what I mean is, is that, you know, while I like to think that, you know, that my kids see the world the way I do and experience it the way I do, the truth is, is they don't. Uh, there are certain things, I mean, as silly as this sounds, when, when the grand boys bring their tablets over and they're blazing through their Minecraft screens, I'm like, what are you doing? I mean, I'm playing Pong on an Atari. Right? Right. So, I mean, that obviously dates me. But I'm sitting here, and, and their, their grasp of technology, even though I think I'm a pretty good adopter of technology, I, nothing. Yeah. Th this is, I'm, a, I'm an immigrant. They're natives. And as a result, I think you, you still have to figure out that, you know, with your grandkids and even, even still with your adult children, you, you can't universalize your experience. Uh, and I think sometimes, frankly, that's what makes... You know, if you're trying to figure out, okay, so what prior generations do, and I, this is not bash prior generations moment, but it, it is something that's observable that there are some tendencies to universalize your experience and freeze it in time. Sure. You know, and so I can find myself doing that, you know, so if I get frustrated and, and so, you know, I, I, think, the, I think the big challenge is, is, <clears throat> is this. I think the downside of uh, technology is the sense I've always got to be doing something. Now, I don't mean always playing a game, for instance, or but I do think that because of the availability of technology uh, and we've paid extraordinary amounts of money for it, I need to be using it. So I need to be looking at it all the time. I need to be checking this or checking that. That trains me to think that I'm justifying the fact that I've got a $1,000 phone in my hand. I'm justifying, otherwise it doesn't make sense to have a $1,000 phone in your hand if you're not using it. That seems like a waste of money. So I think uh, you know, subconsciously that works into you know, how life's experienced today that I, I'm not really of value if I'm not doing something all the time. That translates into uh, a self-justifying pattern of busyness where, where um, uh, I'm actually missing opportunities with my family. And I don't mean the caricature of we're all sitting around dinner table looking at our phones while we're, while we're, while we're eating out of our fast food sacks, you know, I'm not, that's not what I mean. But I mean, our, oh, our, 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 yeah, well, you can't. But I mean, our minds are trained to not be present. You know, if we're going to really kind of inculcate in our families, you know, the sense of helping others, you know, one of the keys is to be present to others. And, and if I am always preoccupied because I've given into this incessant pattern of busyness, then even if you and I are sitting here together, Sean, I can be thinking about, I've got this meeting at 1.30 tomorrow. What am I, you know, I'm, I'm kind of interested to what's going to be presented and what's my response going to be. And I'm, I, I, could, I could sit here and say, Sean, I'm multitasking. I'm half paying attention to you. We're getting this podcast. I hope it does not stink. Uh, but right now in my mind, because I've bought into the pattern of business that I'm still thinking about this meeting tomorrow, you know. And, and I think that that's an unconscious thing. But what happens is our kids generally are the ones that pick that up. 
they're generally ones that notice when someone's not present. And then yes. even worse, they notice it in their peers. They, they, when they're at, at important moments where sometimes they need their peers, because all kids do, right. they need their peers, they can identify that their peers also are not really paying attention. And they're really trying to say, I, I need a friend for a minute. And why I'm not talking about, you know, this, this you know, an, an overly sense of neediness, but, but kids need relationships. And I think, I, think, I think one of the difficult things is trying to help kids see that you don't have to always be busy. You, you need to be present to your cousin. <laughs> you know, your cousin's trying to get your attention. And, you know, you could stop long enough to see what it is they want. But if they always see us, you know, busy, then they're just internalizing our habits without us saying and teaching them how to do it, you know. Yeah, that's, that's one of the things that I've been really wrestling with lately is trying to, trying to fix that in myself and then trying not to, you know, present that as something, basically not to present it as a good thing to my kids because we live in this culture now where, you know, busy is like the ideal you know oh, right. oh, how things at work oh man they're busy right. like that's some great thing they're really busy right. look look how busy right. i am right you know but that's not necessarily a good thing and right. i mean because half the busy anymore that doesn't even have to do with what we're doing at sure work. sure you know? it's it's like you said it's, it's looking at your phone i mean the average right now that somebody looks at their phone i think since iphones started recording that they come out with some i can't even say it statistics on that and I think the average is like five hours and 30 some odd minutes. I, that's what I heard recently. Mm -hmm. uh, so five and a half hours a day, we're staring at our phone, which right. some of that you know might be doing some work on you. Sure, it's very sure. possible, it's possible, but most of it's probably not. Right. I heard somebody talking about today, you know, they're constantly looking to try and figure out what's my default. So whenever I don't know what else to do, what's my default that I go to? Oh. And you know, for some people their default is you know Instagram. And so like right. he identified my default is Instagram, so I'm gonna delete Instagram off my mm -hmm. phone. Mm -hmm. So he deleted that one and then he figured out, oh, now, now my default is Facebook. So now I've gotta do something about Facebook or my, maybe right. my default is a book. It could right. be anything, but it's usually right. something on that phone. Right. But what we forget, and this was actually in, in an interview with Cal Newport who, uh, he wrote the book Deep Work, and he's wrote, mm -hmm. written a couple other books on productivity. Mm -hmm. But you know, he made a great point. He said, you know, being busy is not a great thing, and being bored is actually not a bad thing. Because whenever we're actually bored, that forces us to actually think. Yes. It forces us to take action. It forces yes. us to go and do something. Yes. And but we live in this culture now where we feel like you know being bored is the worst possible thing that right. can happen. We can't be bored at any time. Right. We have to be entertained all the time. Right. But by doing that, we're depriving ourselves of all kinds of opportunity because whenever you're bored, I mean, you think about some, when you come up with some of your best ideas, it's usually whenever you go and take a walk, right? right. right. You're bored, you're sitting around, you right. come up with something because your mind wants to do something. Right. Or maybe you do just go and take a, a leisurely stroll, maybe you take a run, whatever it is. Right. That's whenever those ideas tend to yeah. come. Yeah, and that's a great point. And I, you know, not to get off into like what I do most with most of my time and thinking, but you know, there is a there is an author we both have an appreciation for. He's he's now gone, but but you know, uh, you could run the parallel that that uh, um, to to look at my default is Instagram, or to look at my default then is now Facebook, or my it's it's. Snapchat or whatever happens to be the next thing that's on my phone that I haven't yet deleted is really to try to figure out how to manage your uh, uh, 
it's a it's a it's a default management where you're still trying to justify your time and so you know when Willard talked about how we manage ourselves rather than be ourselves and that was one of his it's I mean I'm cheating taking liberties with his idea but you know, and Todd's I, talking about Dallas Willard. If anybody is wondering, out yes, there. I, you know, philosopher at USC was a, a, a Christian man, but taught, uh, you know, in the, you know, Division One philosophy uh, yeah, departments. And the conspiracy changed my life. Yes, and when he when he describes the the realities that human beings naturally try to manage the things that really shouldn't be the things that we spend our time managing, they're actually revelatory. And I think that's really what you're describing, and I think the fellow you interviewed is, is spot on, because sometimes we just need to rest in that, and that is when we come up with some of our great ideas. You know, run, treadmill, stroll, whatever. You know, my greatest thing at times sitting on that lawnmower, I got to mow about, you know, acre and three quarter, you know, so. I actually look forward to that because, it, it, you know, it, you're, you're, I, yeah, I've got the pattern down. I know what I'm going to do so I can let my mind go. Yes. I still have to watch where I'm going. You know, don't want to run over anything I shouldn't. But still, you know, those are times where I can't sit there and watch my phone. I can't check it and take pictures as I'm mowing on it for Instagram, yeah. you know. I can't carry on a Facebook Messenger chat, you know, while I'm on the mower, you know. So I think that I think that, that goes back to, I think, when we can distinguish between my activities as justifying myself, which means, is another way of saying, of deriving my meaning, or I can see my mission and the meaning in that mission, then it really helps me uh, address my time a little bit. So if, if, if I'm not careful, I'm going to be off mission. Yeah. You know, if I'm trying to manage those things instead of giving to my mission. And so I think that's another way to kind of apply some of the, um, oh, I forget who the philosopher was, the greatest influence on Willard. Um, any, anyway, I think he got some of that, you know, how to apply that to personhood there. And I think it's, I think it's fairly, uh, I just said don't do universal things, but I think that's a fairly universal experience. Yeah. Yeah, and now you're giving me a new challenge. I have to stop listening to podcasts while I'm on the mower because that's typically what I do. Now, I'm trying now to wait, learn all. Now of wait that. a minute. Wait a minute. Now I'm, I'm. Wait a minute. Now I, I'd have to. I'd be cheating myself here. That's what I do. But okay. see, I think in those moments, um, you're not. It's not a default in that moment because what you said is important. I'm always trying to learn, and I think if I were going to try to figure out what the biggest challenge is for younger generations is the idea that it's okay to say you don't know something. Oh, yeah. And with the internet, we think we have encyclopedic knowledge at our fingertips, and we really don't, because half of what's out there is someone made up. Yes. And so as a consequence, um, I think we, we have to be you know, fairly discerning in who we listen to, but we're trying to learn. And I think if you're going to leave a legacy, if, you, if you're going to lead in any way in, in this mission that you anyone feels kind of compelled to, they got to keep learning. And so, you know, that's where I would say, you know, um, multitasking there is a gift in the sense that, you know, it's, it's probably better on my ears listening to the podcast than the muffler on the mower. Yes. You know, I, I, I'm, I'm probably protecting my ears and at the same time learning something 
along the way. Well, and you brought up something else that this will take us down another rabbit trail, but I think it's a good rabbit trail. Um, you talked about how you you know you already know how to mow, and so your body can go through the motions and your mind can run. And that's one of the things that I was really interested in a few months ago and read a couple different books on you know basically getting into a state of flow. Mm-hmm. You know, because we've all had those experiences where mm-hmm. all of a sudden everything just mm-hmm. clicks and works, whether you're, mm-hmm. you know, maybe you're writing and uh, you kind of struggle with it for 10 or 15 minutes and then all of a sudden things just take off. Right. And it feels like you've been typing for, you know, 10 to 15 minutes and you look up and it's been an hour and a half or two hours and you've typed out, you know, 1,500 words in that time. Right. And, uh, you know, you just get into that state of flow, or it may be, it could be with any number of different things that you get into a state of flow. I can remember the one time I've been in a state of flow in doing something athletic, and that was actually a basketball game whenever I was in, I was probably 19 or 20 years old and playing with a a bunch of what I thought were the old guys at the time, and they were actually younger than I am now, (laughs) around town, and we had a, you know, a a Wednesday morning basketball game, and for whatever reason, I was a terrible basketball player, but for whatever reason that day, I could not miss, (laughs) and I got into flow that one day, and I'll never forget that, because that's the only time I've ever been in flow, you know, trying to do something athletic like that, but what brings us into that state, what I, at least all the authors that I read, is you're able to basically disengage from the past, you disengage from the future, you put your mind, is, is it work doing some kind of task mm-hmm. that it already knows how to do, mm-hmm. and it basically takes out the prefrontal cortex. Mm-hmm. And that prefrontal cortex is what's always worried about the past or the future. Mm-hmm. That's where the, all mm-hmm. your sense of time is at, and that's mm-hmm. why time gets away from you when you get into that state right. of flow. Right. And so that's a great time to think is whenever, and for me it used to be running. Right. You know, uh, I wish I could still right. run like I used to, right. but I've got some knee problems, back problems, right. and that kind of stuff. But right. whenever I would run, my body would just go into autopilot. Yeah. And whenever it would go into autopilot, I could actually, I could run, you know, for 10 to 14 miles and not even realize that I'm working hard. I'd speed right. up whenever I would get into that state. Right. But I could think about all kinds of different things and had all kinds of ideas while I was doing that. Mm-hmm. Because my, you know, my body was on autopilot. My mind was occupied by, part of it was occupied with doing that, but... You know, you just you kind of get into that state of flow. Oh yeah, and I th- I think that that's a um, I think that's an important um, point to make uh, in, in particularly because I think I think that we end up experiencing a great deal of frustration when we start thinking about our mission when we can't achieve that. And I think that um, the one thing you described is and and I hadn't really thought about taking the prefrontal cortex out. You know, which is which is, you know, you're, you're, what you're concerned about because it's what's coming. It's that flight or flight kind of uh, uh, synapse that goes to work. And so you start, again, like you said, thinking about what's coming. Mm-hmm. And, and then what's coming is always triggers what happened. And you can't be right there. You can't be present. You can't be present. And, and I, I do think that that is... A, a, uh, a good thing that writers are drawing attention to because I actually think it's just an, another way of addressing our busyness. You know, and I think too, you know, we can't do anything about the past. And, um, and we really can't do anything about the future, frankly. I mean, we can dream about it and we certainly can make decisions that impact our future. I don't want to take any idea of consequence out of the equation. But the realities are, if you're on mission, you're trying to achieve something, accomplish something. If you're not present to it right then, there's no possibility you'll achieve it in the future. Right. You, you'll cut a step, you'll cut a corner, you'll leave something out. But if you're in the, like you said, if you're in the flow and you just, you're on, 
Yeah. Uh, whether it's like you, writing is a great illustration. You just because anyone who's ever sat down to write a letter to a customer, to an employee, to a petition for a grant, whatever it might be, has had that moment where like, okay, how do I get started? But once you do, man, it rolls, you know? And you have, you're not sitting here thinking about the past and you're not thinking about how they're going to receive the letter. You're thinking about the letter. And that present, I think, is really, really... Um, I think we cheat ourselves when we're just not yes. you know, living present. So being present to people, but also being present to what's going on right now. Well, and, yeah, and presence just relates to everything that everything. we've talked about because everything. one, that's one one of the things that our kids are craving. Mm-hmm. My kids are the same way. Yeah. I struggle with it too. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, they want you to be present, mm-hmm. uh, and at the same time, we've got all these things that are distracting us from being yeah. present. Yeah. You know, this fear of being bored is one of the things that definitely keeps us from being present. Um, but you know, another great example of you know ways to get in the flow. My kids actually thought I was nuts this last spring break because whenever we went snow skiing, it's the first time I'd been snow skiing in gosh, I don't know six years or something like wow. that. But it's actually one of the only things that I'm athletically good at because mm-hmm. gravity is on my side when I'm sliding <laughs> down a hill. Um, but we were snow skiing, and my kids thought I was absolutely nuts because whenever I'm skiing, I get into that flow really quick because I don't have time to think about what's you know, a hundred feet down the hill, and yep. I don't have time to think about what I just went over. All I can think about is what's under my feet, right? Exactly right, now. right. And so I was completely present, which makes you know, it, I don't know if it triggers endorphins or what it does. Well, actually, I think it does trigger yeah, some endorphins does. and things like that. So it's it's almost like a high mm-hmm. whenever you're doing that. And so my kids thought I was crazy because as we were going down the hill, whenever we would get to places where I could actually rest a little bit, it started snowing on us one morning up on the mountain and, and big snowflakes, and I'm. I'm just basically sliding down the mountain with my arms out and my mouth open trying to catch snowflakes, and they thought I was absolutely crazy, but I was having the best time of my life. Good, good. But they had no idea what happened to Dad. Right, 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 right. They're back there still trying to do their their pizza wedge and and hang on, and I'm uh, Uh, I'm out there experiencing flow. They weren't quite there yet. They will be one day. Right, right. And those are the illustrations that really make for good points, especially for kids. They... You know, they might not capture, we, you know, got in a little neurological sort of explanations, but when you give those illustrations that you've given, like, you know, skiing, they'll remember back to that. And oh, I, that makes sense. You weren't thinking about, and here we were worried, you know, about what's to come and what are we going to hit, and did we make it past where we made it past last time before we fell down, you know? And uh, no, no, get in it, you know, that's, yeah. that's a great illustration. Well, think about how much time. What percentage of our time do we spend thinking about the future or the past? Oh, right. I mean, it's got to be. Oh. Well, I don't, I'm just sheer guessing here, but it's got to be 80% plus is spent thinking about the past or the future. It's maybe 90%. Plus. Yeah, because it, because after all, that again, it, it's a it's a cultural expectation. What are you going to do? Yeah. What are you going to do? And I better have an answer. You know, what are you what are you going to do? And so you're always pointing or now, you know, you you get somewhere and um, you're at a business meeting, you're leading it and, you know, someone wants to know your credentials. Well, you have to list. Here's what I've done. You know, so we do spend an inordinate amount of time because people will take notice of us if we can tell them all that we've done. And they'll be really wild when we tell them all that we plan to do. Yes. Yeah. 
Yeah. Well, and you know, along the lines of you know, how much time do we spend thinking about the past and the future? That's something else that I've done recently. Is just for work, I uh, sat down and I just scheduled out how much time I spend doing different tasks mm-hmm. for work to try mm-hmm. and figure out where I was spending most of my mm-hmm. time at and mm-hmm. what I needed to do mm-hmm. to try and make sure I'm spending more time on the things that I should be focused on. Sure. And the truth is. I'm going to say probably 85% of my time was spent on things that I shouldn't even be messing with. Yeah. I mean, 50 hours a month on email. Right. There's, oh, wow. there's no reason to spend 50 hours right. a month on email. I've got to find some way to, to fix that and get somebody else to take it off my plate and do something right. so that I'm sp- actually able to spend time on the things that, that I should be spending time on. Yeah. And that's important for work so that we know that we're, we're focused on the right things sure. and prioritizing the right things because sure. the truth is... We can talk about priorities all we want, but right. what we really prioritize is the things that we spend time on. Yeah, it was the scariest exercise I had to do. I had a class, I think it was probably uh, in seminary, and one of the tasks was stop every 30 minutes and write down what you did the last 30 minutes. Yeah. That's pet- petrifying, you know? Yeah. And I, so I, try, I did that exercise with the staff at church, and man, oh, that was a struggle, you know? Yeah. To, to realize, you know, you know, not that we at what we do, you know, are measuring that you're squeezing every ounce of every minute out of every day wasn't the point. It was what are we doing with our time? All of us could probably do a little bit better with our time. That's a scary thing, man. Well, what I'm really scared of is I, what I need to do is sit down and write, write out all the time that I'm spending at home and what I'm doing during that time that mm. I spend at home. Mm. That's the one I'm really scared to write down because Ooh, I'm afraid of how that'll come out. I haven't thought about that one. That could... That could that could get me. <laughs> yeah. Because I'm a victim of just like everybody else of you know that wanting to not be bored and wanting to right. be. And, of course, it's not any trouble at our house to try and stay busy. No, so no. There's, I there's can always it. plenty to do. There's always a you know a backlog of things that need to be done or right. things that kids need. But right. still, whenever I have that spare time, instead of trying to spend quality time with the kids, all too often I'm looking at something on my phone mm-hmm. uh, or you know watching a television show which I don't watch very much TV but yeah. I still watch some and sure you know, sure even though I think there's you know there's some good to come from you know watching certain shows and things like that but man is it is it better than time that I could spend with those kids yeah it's probably not yeah yeah I don't know we're gonna have to stop you making me feel guilty <laughs> well, that was not my intention. I know. That was not my intention. I'm mostly just making myself feel guilty. Oh, That's what the yeah. real intention is. Yeah. Um, a couple other things that I wanted to uh, talk about a little bit here. This is actually, I'll just be honest, this is my favorite question to ask people yeah. because I think it's really interesting. Yeah. So was there somebody in your life that you really wanted to emulate in terms of the kind of impact that they made? Yeah. Um, two people. Actually, probably three, but two people, and that is, I I mentioned early on, uh, my dad, you know, um, I I watched my dad um, in volunteer capacities do a lot of things. Um, He was involved in his his church. Um, We didn't live, where we lived, wasn't a community like Tuttle, you know, we lived in kind of a um, at the time, it would have been kind of a shallow, what today what would be a shallow area of northwest Oklahoma City. So there was no sort of, you know, there were, uh, it, it was way before the days of, you know, community watch programs or n- neighborhood cookouts and that sort of thing. Now, we knew everybody on the street. You know, we knew all of our neighbors, and he would help 
you know, some of our neighbors. But I, I watched over time the way my dad, you know, just kind of quietly without a lot of fanfare would do things a lot of people would notice unless someone said, you know. And I thought um, that garnered him quite a bit of respect. He never, he never tooted his own horn. He never, you know, he never went out of his way to say, look what I did. And yet, in a world where that seems to be the thing today, you know, make sure everybody knows what I did. Right. Um, I remember the, the quality of reputation he had garnered and the impact that he'd had and, and the confidence that uh, other men had in him, the trust they had in him and, and th those sorts of things. And, and so, you know, probably from that standpoint, um, that was probably my first sort of uh, notice of how someone's actions drew the attention in a specific response where someone would go, you know, we're going to miss that person. You know, we're going to miss that person. Uh, the second person, uh, you know, in, in relationship to what I do for, you know, vocation and pastoral work, my, my mentor, uh, you know, um, he never became the pastor of a, a massive megachurch. Uh, um, he he, but but he really found ways to be involved in the communities he was in, and um, and I thought that if I could pay attention to the way he built relationships, the interest he legitimately took in people, not so he could again, you know, he's he's another guy who didn't toot his own horn and didn't make sure people knew all that went on and all the successes he had had, and and then. You know, to know uh, to this day, we I know I served on staff with him in the late 1980s, and to know even to this day there are people now, all these years later, who just you know made such an impact that that they'll they'll call him even still for advice. Uh, family has a crisis or a need, they know he's going to show up. And, and so he probably, in terms of someone who does what I do, where you would be looking for someone in that area or that field, he's probably the figure that has had the most um, impact on me thinking about, well, what would it look like for me to kind of emulate that habit and that practice? And, uh, and, it, and it came late in, in life, and probably I'm only going to mention just the piece of advice that he gave, because what does happen to us is, is as we were talking earlier, as you know, we get on mission and, and we start seeing lots of possibilities, sometimes we can um, drag people with us. Yeah. And, and so when, when I uh, needed a good piece of advice, having noticed some of those things for myself and maybe some transitions of a way of even seeing what I do or even how I think about what I do. Uh, we had a phone conversation and I, I was, my, my pen was ready, my journal was open and I, was, I knew he was just, just dispensed with this really good piece of wise advice. And he paused for me and he said, well, just don't be rude. <laughs> and I'm like, is that all you got? I don't you have anything more than that, you know? And, and that has stuck with me uh, for almost 20 years now. Um, that when I began to sense those things, you know, for me, seeing the things that we talked about early, these other possibilities, knowing full well that there, there wouldn't be immediate buy-in. Right. 
And it could be surely like, hey, come on, I know. And, you know, pastors have an uncanny knack of trying to bring the divine into some edict. You know, God told us to do this thing. Well, you can still be rude with that. You know, that, that's actually manipulative. And so, you know, at that point, you have to just, you know, uh, if people are going to be involved in what you see as your mission, I thought that was pretty sound advice. Yeah, it's a lot better advice, you know, whenever you're looking back on situations where you maybe were rude <laughs> than, than you realize. Because, you yeah. know, I talk about sometimes, uh, we've talked about it several times in my Sunday school class, I went through what I call the cage stage whenever I would have been better off if somebody would have locked me in a cage <laughs> and thrown away the key for about two years <laughs> because I had a lot of ideas mm -hmm. that... I had to make sure everybody else agreed with my ideas, and they had to think the same way I did. Right. And if they didn't, right. I was going to badger them until right. they either did or they stopped coming to Sunday school. And some of them stopped coming to Sunday school. And so, yeah, yeah, that yeah. don't be rude is some really yeah. good advice because yeah. whatever it is that you are sure is the answer and was absolutely the way it has to be right now. One thing you can be sure of is five years from now, you're probably going to have a different idea. You're probably going to have one. Yeah. 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 And so yeah. You, you look back and you realize, oh, yeah. that, maybe, that, yeah. maybe I wasn't right. And, and, I I act, and, I, right. and I actually think that transcends kind of the setting that we, you know, we were talking about. I think that that actually, you know, in you know, where you were. This podcast is brought to you by Impact Legacy and Meaning Groups. If you want to increase your impact on your business, family, and community while building a personal and financial legacy that will last for generations, if you want support and accountability while getting there, if you want to 10x your creativity and intelligence for bridging the gap between where you are now and where you want to be, then apply to join a peer group at impactlegacyandmeaning.com. So that was part one of two with Dr. Todd Littleton. I hope you enjoyed it. There will be a part two coming soon, uh, hopefully next week, but we'll see whenever we're able to get that worked in. We'll try to pick up right where we left off, and this time I think I'll bring a backup recorder. Thanks for listening to Impact, Legacy, and Meaning. If you found what you heard today helpful, be sure to subscribe and leave a review on iTunes. That would really help me out. Also, don't forget to download your own personal assessment from impactlegacyandmeaning.com, where you can also check the show notes for any links or references from today's podcast. And remember, the only thing holding you back is you.